true life, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But the whole who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, Privacy with art form. Others, of course, 
elevated publicity to an art form, when their 15 minutes of fame came, it seemed like they endeavored to do nearly anything to retain and maintain that fame. Very different responses to the spotlight, as you said. But there's something that can be said about both the Salingers and the Kardashians. Well, while so many people say that they want to be normal, and if they ever got rich, or if they ever got famous, or if they ever got popular, they didn't get the same person. But no one does. No one does. We, we get an accolade to those well-known people who came down to earth, who seem at least outwardly to be unchanged by their lives. But I think it's fair to say that it changes everyone. We certainly just, we sort of just recognize them because they seem, at least outwardly, less changed than the others. But you just can't win the lottery or become an overnight celebrity or, or crash Instagram with followers and remain exactly the same. It's just not possible. When the spotlight hits, John 1, 9 through 13, uh, there's a short turn in, in John's prologue to his gospel, his narrative of the good news of Jesus. And he points us to what happens when we encounter uh, not the spotlight of fame, but the light which is Jesus himself. We've been in a, a very short series here on the prologue to John's gospel, the first 18 verses of the first chapter of this book. Um, if you miss them, uh, I apologize for leaving behind them being certainly up on the website. I would say seven feet. But that's where we're at. And in this passage, John shows us that there will be a reaction to the light. And he explores this for us by taking us to, to three things there's, sort of a, there's a revealing, there's a, there's a responses to that revealing, and, and Right. So there's a, a revealing, there's responses, and then there's a right. And so we're going to unpack those three things that John, the author, draws to our attention. Uh, to our attention. So first of all, this revealing. And then we might say the double revealing in a way, one's a little bit more subtle. Uh, so look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 reads again, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And there are two revealings here. One, one is sort of at the core, and one is at the background. And I'm going to touch on the one that's in the background first, uh, because I think it's a little less significant, but still there. John says that the true light was coming into the world. John is, in a way, saying that the true light was about to be revealed to the world. Now, most translations agree on this, but if you have an old King James Version, um, 11, you might notice a confusing change there. They translate this not as the light coming into the world, but the every man coming into the world. And it's a possible translation. I'm not going to get deep into this, I'm bore you to death with it. Um, but I, I do think that the modern translations have this right for a lot of very good reasons. What I want to draw attention to on this point, though, is that uh, this idea of Jesus being the true light. 
Uh, that's, of course, where the title of this sermon series comes from, The True Light. And in verse 4, John describes Jesus as the Word in whom was life, and that the light was the light of men. But here, in verse 9, Jesus has not just become the one in whom was light, but who was in fact
And, and this true light that comes to the world is Jesus says it gives light to everyone. Literally, it says every man and it's every human. And here there's some debate about exactly what John means. Just as in English, you have the idea of being enlightened. Literally, being illuminated with light as a metaphor for some sort of awakening reality. So they had that same sort of idea of illumination in the ancient world. There's a parallel there. And so maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe Jesus enlightening every man. And linguistically that could be, except that it sure doesn't look like everyone in the world has been enlightened by Jesus. As we look around the world, we see a world that doesn't fit that pattern. And, and while there are some variations on this idea that, that some scholars are pointing to, they don't really do justice to what John actually says here for this concept. Instead, I think there's another use of this concept of illumination that we even have in English uh, that we share with ancient Greek speakers that makes more sense of what John's book is attempting to say. And that's the idea of light and illumination as it is being. So when we say that we need to cast some light on this event, or we ask someone to shed some light on what's going on, we're asking them to reveal in more detail so we can understand. Similarly, um, we, we often don't see clearly without illumination. Um, it used to be, I, I don't know, is it still common? Uh, there was a, like a decade or so when it, it seems like every woman had a little small flashlight on her keychain. Does it here still like keep small flashlights that they keep like, like shining under the car? Because there was like some like news story that came out. You know, like people would hide under the car in the shopping center at night and then they like attack the woman. And so like everyone for a while when it was like carrying around this little flashlight and like, I guess you look under the car and make sure you're not going to be attacked in the parking lot. Um, because what's hidden in the dark is unknown. And what's seen is revealed. But light doesn't just tell us what's there versus what's not there. It helps us to see things, we might say, as they actually are. Sometimes in the dark, our imaginations run wild, trying to make sense of the shadows and the fog before us. And, and a shining, a revealing, can help us to know what we're dealing with, what is, what is true, and what is a shadow, what is just illusion. That's why, you know, even in a brightly lit office, when you go to the doctor, um, she won't likely look into your mouth without shining a light on the back of your throat, right? And the doctor cannot be sure to see things as they are and make the proper diagnosis without shining a light. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, Back in the back of the throat, just uh, 
might be tempted to think, because it's rather natural in English, to assume that the world is this material space, this physical sphere on which we walk. And I know that's how I often read John uh, for years. And the idea of the world comes up repeatedly in John's book. And so perhaps it means that he enters this physical universe, this naturalistic plane that we dwell. And so we think of the spiritual monogos, the word of God, entering the physical world. It's the supernatural invading the natural. And that's no doubt true, but it's not exactly what John meant. Because for John, the world, the cosmos, refers not just to the physical world, but it refers to the entire created order, which stands in open rebellion against God. In other words, world for John is not a neutral term. It's a term, when he uses it, that implies hostility. It implies warfare. Let me give you an illustration from history that at least it, it works up here north of the Mason Dixon line. Uh, during the Civil War, 11 states seceded from the Union and set up an independent government, the Confederate States of America. Now, there was debate about whether it was legal or, or possible for any state to secede from the Union. And the Confederacy would test the limits of that political theory. But the United States government, obviously, uh, most of us know, under the government of President Lincoln, argues that the, un the Union was, as we say, indivisible, cannot be divided. It's been said by historians that functionally the Civil War settled that question once and that secession is not it's not possible. And if that's true, if that's right, if, if, if succession is not a right of the state, then what we had going on during the Civil War is the Confederate States rightly belonged to the United States of America, but were, but were in open, rebellious hostility the rightful mother. When the word came into the world, it was like as if Abraham Lincoln had left the cozy confines of Washington, D.C. and traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, the first capital of the Confederacy. It's like the members of the Second Continental Congress, which ratified the Constitution in 1789, rose from the dead and marched into Richmond, Virginia, the final of the Confederacy. This was not merely stepping into a new sphere, a new realm. It was a figure who ought to have been beloved, entering the space of those who hated him, and would, if necessary, kill him. World is not a neutral term for John. It is universe and everything created that is in open rebellion against God. 
Well, that's going to happen with professors. Right? Abraham Lincoln had left D.C. and traveled down to Montgomery, Alabama. There would have been some repercussions to that. It would have forced people to respond in some way. Who knows exactly how they would have responded and done something so dramatic? He didn't. But Jesus did that, and we need to look at what the results of that revealing are. And we see these in verses 10 and 12. Verses 10 through 12 says, The world did not know him, that his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, gave birth to his children's son. There's a double result here. There's a double ramification. John repeats what he has said in verses 1 through 5, and in verse 9, to emphasize the shocking nature of what he's about to write. He was in the world, John writes, and the world was made through him, he reminds us, but the world did not know him. Know is a poignant word for John and for a lot of biblical writers, especially in the New Testament. For John, to know Jesus or to know God was more than cognitive recognition. Not just a mental thing and an ascension to certain facts about who Jesus was. To know Jesus or to know God was to be in intimate relationship with him. And it, it, it was a two-way street. So Jesus can say, on the day of judgment, there will be people who claim that they've done great things in his name, cast out demons in his name, even, he'll say, and done miracles in his name, he'll say. And they think that their outward works and their outward appearances will have them received into heaven. And Jesus says that on that day, he will say, quote, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. Behold, I never knew you. You see, knowledge in this sense isn't merely knowing certain facts. It's embracing certain realities about a person so that you become inseparably attached to that person. Imagine a groom was given a crystal ball that reveals all of his bride's personality to him. Because you know, you won't know your bride or groom fully. Like, you know this. Even after like 10 years of marriage, question at 13, don't know my bride fully. Um, so suppose this lucky or unlucky receives this crystal ball that shows him all of his bride's glorious qualities and all of her inglorious qualities. It shows him all of her quirks, all of her funny details, and all of her scary dark corners that she keeps people far away from. The groom sees her in full and sees her perfectly, and he marries her nonetheless. 
unflinching in conviction, with no thought of divorce. And why would he? Because he already knows what he's getting into. He sees perfectly what he's getting into. A death plus new part marriage. I don't know that there's any man who in his immaturity of Jews would be so selfless. But that's a bit like what John means by no. There, there are no dark corners to Jesus, of course. But we have dark corners. And when Jesus knows us, he embraces us with perfect knowledge of our faults. When we know Jesus, we embrace him in his fullness. We're not worried about fault, but, and this is important, we are embracing the Jesus who is, not the Jesus we want to, there to be. Not the Jesus that we've made up in our own image, but, but we embrace the Jesus who actually exists, uh, a, a sometimes surprising Jesus, sometimes a, a confusing Jesus, but we love the real Jesus, and so when we're surprised by him, by him, or doesn't seem to be the guy we want him to be, we say, but I want to go deeper and understand and love this Jesus. That's what it is to know him. And so Jesus came to this universe in rebellion and, and it did not know him. I mean, for sure, many people saw Jesus, they spoke to Jesus, they, they heard his teachings, they saw his deeds. Thank you. 